0: Welcome to the Adventure Therapy Collective Podcast. Our offices are mountains, rivers, and the woods. Climbing, hiking, and paddling are just what the doctor ordered.
1: Doug, can we just acknowledge how bad Daniel is at scheduling meetings and putting them in our calendar? I had a Saturday morning at 5.30 a.m., a Sunday at whatever time. Dan, Zoom literally does this for you. How could you be this horrible at it?
0: I blame Australia. You guys exist in a different day. You exist in the future. Have you ever tried to build a time machine in order to schedule a Zoom meeting? It's not easy. It's like, and you're not in a time zone that's like a number of hours. You're an hour and a half. Like you, you're a half oh. an hour time zone. So I exclusively blame you for this, Will. Do
1: you want to know something really stupid about my Adelaide half hour time zone? is Queensland does not do daylight savings. So that means there are times Queensland is either half hour ahead of me or half hour behind me. And meanwhile, if you just cross the border, it's always half hour ahead of me. So there's this one state that jumps back and forth before and after me, depending on daylight savings. And that makes talking to Graham Pringle and I had uh, Youth Flourish Outdoors, I did there peer supervision last night makes it very hard to remember what time this is when it is it's horrible
0: i have the same thing with prescott we don't have the half an hour but yeah i teach at prescott and i live in oregon prescott's in arizona they're on mountain time we're on pacific time but they don't have daylight savings time so half the year they're on pacific time although it's mountain time without daylight savings time the other half the year they're on regular mountain time so i'm just like
2: I'm just hearing excuses, though, like today's technology, <laughs> it should just do it for you. That's exactly what I was thinking, Doug. And anyway, Maybe
0: the advanced Zoom technology you all have in Australia. In the US, we don't have that yet. Uh,
2: see, we're about 10 years behind the rest of the world, so I don't know. <laughs> then we're 20. So.
0: I, I mean, hearing- we're at least 100 years behind. We still use imperial numbers, so. <laughs> mm, that's true. Yeah. I keep
1: hearing, Doug, that Australians invented Wi-Fi. Is that true, or is that just something they say?
2: Mm. i think that has some truth to it i think there was is the person who created wi-fi is an australian but that's about the extent of my knowledge Mm -hmm. it's all voodoo for me
0: i keep hearing that americans invented like everything and i know it's a lie (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) i I remember having this argument with friends and the weber you know the the charcoal barbecue and they were going this is Pinnacle Australian, like every Australian has one. It's just part of Australian culture to have a Weber and this and that. And I Googled it, I was like, that was invented in Illinois. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's our American claim to fame, is we invented the Weber grill. Yep. There you go. That's it. (laughs) Weber grill versus Wi-Fi.
2: Yep. There's worse, there's worse things to be famous for.
0: So Thanks so much, Doug, for joining us. Uh, For our listeners, we're talking to Doug Mazinski today, the founder of Gippsland Adventure Therapy, to learn about his practice and specifically adventure therapy and private practice work. So thanks for being with us today, Doug. Can you tell us about what you do and how you got started with the private practice work in adventure therapy? Before you do that, Doug...
1: Daniel, thanks for showing me your notes that you didn't show me, because clearly you did prepare for this and I did not. So uh, thank you for taking the lead. Go ahead, Doug.
2: Um, Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Geez, there's far more interesting people in the world. So I don't know, where do I start? Um, I come from an adventure guiding background. So my main thing was climbing specifically. Worked as a guide for, I don't know, a few years or something like that, six years or seven years. And somehow just fell into working at a not-for-profit, working with youth at risk, uh, young people. I landed my dream job running the wilderness program, uh, which was probably the best way to describe it, was an adventure therapy program. It ran as an expedition-based program, and I think it was around for about 30 years, uh, and I got to run it for about 10 of those years. And then I didn't want to go back to doing a nine-to-five job, so I started Gippsland Adventure Therapy. And... Essentially, it's a well-being service that aims to do good things for people by taking them into the outdoors, engaging them in an exciting activity that is appropriate for them and where they're at. And we just try and make it useful mm. and try and make them feel good about it. I say to the, I work mainly with young people, um, although I do do some community days. I say to them, I've got two rules. Uh, first rule is you've got to be safe. And you have to feel safe and I have to feel safe. And the second rule is we have to enjoy what we're doing. And then the rest of it is uh, whatever it is. I don't know. I'm kind of making it up as I go along, if I'm really honest. <laughs> that sounds about right for
0: adventure therapy and for a whole lot of us.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so right. you're, you're telling us about
0: the work that you do and how you do mostly work with kids. Do you work with specific populations or any specific type of kids that you like to work with or types of issues you like to work around?
2: I'm very passionate about saying that this is a service that should be accessible to as many people as possible. The large bulk of my work at the moment, though, is coming from young people with NDIS funding, which is in Australia, we have the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And if you have a a mental health or a disability diagnosis, which falls into a certain category, the government will uh, fund you to Uh, be able to live a more sustainable independent life Uh, and as a young person generally that funding is for accessing things like occupational therapists psychologists community-based activities recreation so my service can fall into that so i get a lot of a lot of people with that funding i've been getting referrals from our local hospital from gps um yeah It's kind of across the board at the moment. And
1: for some context for the listeners uh, that aren't aware of the Australian context, the National Disability Insurance Scheme is, is a fairly new policy and one of the ideas was to make it much more consumer driven in australia anybody can go and and basically you go to your doctor doctor sends you to a psychologist typically for what we think of as as psychotherapy and the ndis plan put much more uh, consumer choice in the policy which actually was a great thing for adventure therapy practitioners what ended up happening is People could go, my son with uh, with an autism diagnosis would really like some social support and uh, that outdoor program looks really cool and they go to the NDIS and say, we want to do this service with with Doug and NDIS says, sweet, that's awesome. The other really cool thing that happened I, and
2: I- th- I wish it was that easy. <laughs> yes,
1: well, they can be a pain in the ass sometimes for sure. <laughs> um, but one of the other things that was really great is The NDIS is much more, I guess, progressive about who can deliver these services. So this is the second time after speaking with Mark Cartner that we're talking with someone who doesn't have a clinical qualification as a psychotherapist, but still the NDIS provides funding for what they might call a therapeutic service. So in that case, that opened the door for a lot of people to start thriving adventure therapy practices.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a huge opportunity. And as frustrating as working within a government-funded system can be, you're right, it has definitely opened the door. Uh, I think we'll probably see more and more people doing this sort of work now. It just requires a bit of flexibility and creative thinking on your part on how you deliver that service and how you badge it up.
0: Well, it sounds like you all have a little bit more flexibility than as far as bringing the adventure into private practice, because I think that's something that a lot of practitioners here are still trying to figure out where they're saying, hey, we have an insurance company that gets a little confused when we're not saying that we're doing a 45-minute or 55-minute mm-hmm. session, that we're going out and doing something in, in the woods in a park for two or three hours. So they're more accepting of that? Or how, how do they handle when you say, hey, I was doing a session, I was doing something in this sort of setting with a different time frame than say a traditional therapy setting.
1: One thing, and this was in the the article I wrote in the conversation, was really motivated when I first came to Australia. And I had all the credentials to become what's considered what's called an accredited mental health social worker, which means I can bill um the Medicare system just like a clinical psychologist would. And what ended up happening is I went to the Australian Association of Social Workers. And I said, sweet, this is awesome. Here's all my paperwork. And uh, by the way, I'm going to do this outside. And they went, no, no, we don't. We don't provide insurance for that. And I said, no, I'll just get my own insurance. And it was this back and forth that was so frustrating. And the article I wrote was when you insert pandemic and COVID-19 and all these practitioners go outside and now insurance companies are starting to catch up a bit more. That, that walking and talking is not really that big of a deal. That's an interesting question. I just wanted to segue, Dan, that hopefully if you're an insurance company listening to this and you haven't already turned off the episode too few times ago where I said all the way you fund things is incorrect, that, just remember that going outside is just as effective as inside.
2: So don't discriminate against the two. Watch this space in Victoria, <laughs> Australia. You never know. Who knows?
0: You were saying that your background, your education to do adventure therapy private practice, uh, is a little bit different than the traditional get a therapy degree or what I would consider the traditional get a therapy degree, integrate your outdoor stuff. What what's your background, your education like in order to get yeah, there? Yeah. I know you said you worked in a number of programs and did some guiding, but what does it take in your in your state um, to be able to do this?
2: That is a good question. It's largely an unregulated field. Um, so I, like I said, I started off as a guide. So I went to our, what we have here called a TAFE, which is a vocational education. It's like a tech school. And I did two year, a two year diploma, learning how to be an adventure guide Um, and lived up at Mount Buller for two years. From there, I worked as a guide And I kind of just fell into working in youth services, but I did lots of professional development and sort of on trauma-informed practice, did some foundational training around Bruce Perry's work. I went and studied a grad certificate in developmental trauma, which was a really good course for me. I think a lot of it was just from being from an adventure guiding background, but working in a child youth services organization and kind of I don't know, learning by osmosis and by doing and by making mistakes. I I actually honestly think for probably I worked there for 12 years. I reckon for the first 6 years I didn't really understand what trauma was and, and why people acted in a certain way. I always wondered what was different about the kids that I worked with versus say a refugee young person who, you know, maybe has had a you know stable childhood, but then there was this period in their life which was extremely traumatic, and how that was different to young people that right from uh, in utero were experiencing multiple traumatic type events. I, I, I think for the majority of my career in youth services, I didn't understand that. And it wasn't until I started doing a bit more learning. And then actually, we got a program evaluation back in 2016. AdventureWorks came and did an evaluation on our program. And I think it was that was sort of the catalyst for me understanding this whole therapy thing. Because uh, before then, therapy was a, a dirty word for me because I was like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not one of those people. Like, yeah, don't use therapy. <laughs> uh, I'm an outdoorsman. And we go outside and we take kids hiking and we keep them out there until they feel better. Um, <laughs> that was sort of my approach. And I realized now that it probably wasn't the best way of doing things. And the crew from Adventure Work, like Anita and, and Pete and Ben, they really challenged me and said, no, you, you're being therapeutic. I was like, don't you use that T word on me. <laughs> um, I was so anti-therapy because my experience of therapy was you know, a psychologist, uh, no offense, um will but like a social worker or someone sitting there going okay tell me how you feel and making Mm. me feel really awkward and weird and i didn't actually understand that therapy really is when you're actively doing something with the intent to help somebody and doing something in a specific way to help somebody so then after probably 2016 onwards i grappled with this idea of therapy and adventure therapy you know and then i found the likes of Graham Pringle, Nevin Harper, Will Dobud, Andy. Yeah, that guy. Andy up at Human Nature Adventure Therapy uh, and so many more like going to the ABAT forums thinking I used to think I was pretty cool and that I was really great at what I did. And then uh, I think I went through a stage of realizing oh, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So it was kind of, I don't know, this is a really bad way of answering your question in a long-winded way, but it was kind of an organic process. Like I don't really plan. I'm not that, strategic. Uh I'm pretty intuitive and I just kind of found my found myself being drawn to where I am now. I never wanted to run my own business. That's crazy. Well um, I'm gonna
0: give a quick aside too for our listeners because a lot of alert listeners in the US will hear AdventureWorks and think of Adventure Works in Illinois, but oh, yeah. there's also an AdventureWorks in Australia. And there's, uh
2: there's two actually.
0: Oh okay, cool. <laughs> I didn't know that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I yeah, there's AdventureWorks in Dunsborough, Western Australia. Uh, they're awesome. Great Shout name. There's guys. a
0: bunch of awesome organizations called AdventureWorks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, but but what I think is interesting about what you're saying is I know a lot of people here in the U.S. who as adventure therapists, they started off as therapists with like an outdoorsy or adventure background or knew about adventure therapy, but then learned the adventure skills along the way, got certified in outdoor therapy or got certified as rock climbing guides, or certified in whatever, but they got the therapy degree first. And I think that's cool because you started as a guide, started in that realm. And then were able to learn the adventure skills and get certificate or the therapy skills and get certificates along the way to be able to integrate that piece. So I think it's cool kind of illustrating the different paths that people can take in this mm. field, especially when we start to look with like a more international lens. Mm. And I think,
2: I know I'm biased, but I actually feel like, that was more ben- more beneficial, that's good English, that was beneficial because as a, as a guide, I would always focus on people's enjoyment and their comfort and their engagement and what we're doing. Is this something that is, you know, interesting to you? And now, uh, as I've been learning more about therapy, I've been discovering that that's probably the most important thing and I think... If you look at the like different models of therapy and the theories, there's there's never really much about being flexible and being intuitive to the person you're working with. It's always like do A and B and equal C, and I don't operate like that. I don't I don't follow any model um, because it's just it's not my model, and I'll never be as good as doing it as the person who created it. But also every kid I work with is totally, I do like every day is different. Like I never do the same thing mm. for two different people. Um, and I just can't see how that can work for for more than like, so you can't just do one thing and that be the best approach for everybody, um, which mm. is why Segway, Hello. Um, when I've learned about, feedback-informed treatment and measuring my outcomes, I thought this is a really interesting uh, and useful tool for me to ensure that what I'm doing is useful. Um, but because it's about – sorry, now I'm really getting – I'm going to get on my high horse here. Um, <laughs> Good. It's, it's, about, it's, it's about the connection. Like who cares about the letters next to your name? And I guess I'm saying this because I don't have many. But if you can't form a genuine connection with somebody doing – uh, a, a particular approach then it's not going to be useful and from doing that evaluation way back in 2016 to where I'm at now like the constant through that and through you know learning about nature based therapy learning about feedback informed treatment learning about developmental and complex trauma and and then going and doing graham's training trauma focused adventure work and then listening to Katie Rose and Nevin Harper and David Siegel and learning about their approach and reading all these books. And the one thing that comes back to it is that's all really great stuff and really useful. And I think my tool belt is getting bigger and bigger. But the number one thing is it's just how does that kid feel with me? That's the main thing.
1: Well, I think you've brought up some good points. And I was just sitting, listening here and reflecting on, like I dove into wilderness therapy because I, I wanted to help. I didn't give a, I didn't give two shits about being a guide. I wanted to be useful and and build relationships. And it was when I got to Alaska crossings that I actually received any sort of good guide training. I had worked at all these wilderness therapy programs and, you know, I've been, I've been public about what I think about the training I received there. A lot of it, very good therapy training, not the best guide training. And when I finally got good guide training, I went, oh my gosh, this actually makes a, a good a good deal of difference how i've been running things and facilitating things yeah i think it's really interesting to reflect on the spectrum of where you sit as therapist or adventure guide and there's a there's a spectrum there you know where we line up on that maybe we could focus a bit on honing in on therapeutic skills or maybe you can focus on thinking about how to guide better and safer and make your make your trips more engaging
2: that sort of stuff um i just i think i need to add that i'm not saying that therapists are not good at adventure therapy and i'm not saying that i discount therapeutic training i think it's actually really important because i'd be a hypocrite if i said that because i get supervision from you, Will, and that I mean, that's mainly around using fit, but it's still Mm. formal supervision. I I have a couple of friends and colleagues that are psychologists that I talk with a lot, and I really lean heavily on their experience and wisdom and advice. And I even find partnering, say if I'm gonna do a session with a therapist as a co-facilitator, I find that that, is extremely beneficial because they're approaching from a different lens. And together, uh, I think it actually provides a really, uh, can provide a much more beneficial service than if you are either or. Mm. And I'm even looking at going and doing a diploma in counseling so That's for me. I know. Well, one, the main (laughs) reason is uh, so that it makes working in different insurance schemes a bit easier and people, um, um, we'll find it more credible but also of course I'll learn something too so I'm not going to say oh well, I'm now going to be the best counselor because now I've got a diploma but I think having more knowledge is good <laughs> well that's a really intelligent way of saying it having more knowledge is good. <laughs> but, but the more knowledge you can have the more things you've got to make judgment calls on and you can't discredit clinical training and knowledge I think definitely that that personal approach and that You know, that human connection approach has been so beneficial for me in in coming from that guiding background first. Well, we talked
0: about this a little bit last time, too, because we were interviewing um, Mark and I was talking about how here in the States, Jen Jevertson is one of my favorite adventure therapists and I learned so much from her and she's trained as an educator. She's another person who does adventure therapy, incredible adventure therapy work, has done some good research and program development and is not trained as a licensed therapist per se, but is certainly one of the better adventure therapists I know. And I think that's a a really important thing to highlight about this field and about how vast and diverse our experiences are. So I I appreciate you being able to share that and talk about how you kind of get that from a lot of different places.
1: Yeah. I was also going to jump in really quick and say, um, speaking of models, and and you said earlier, I don't have a model. You have to... You have to sort of check that a little bit, because I remember <laughs> with the International Center of Clinical Excellence, there was this great discussion on their discussion board about someone asked, if all the models tend to work the same, why choose one at all? Why don't I just do my own model? The thing is, everyone puts their own flavor on their model, right? There's no doubt on their practice framework. And they all ha- everyone has their own professional identity. All that's really important. And no two therapists are the same, practitioners are the same, even if you try to manualize them. And that gets back to Doug's point that it's it's the interpersonal and relational skills. But what I was going to say is when you talk about feedback-informed treatment, Doug, don't forget that that's a registered, empirically supported treatment in and of itself. I stopped talking about adventure therapy altogether when I marketed my program. I only talked about, here's our outcomes. And we're only interested in being useful. And we do adventure therapy. That's our model. And it's, you know, laden with trauma-informed stuff and solution-focused stuff. But what we do is feedback-informed treatment. And that's what we deliver. So that is a model, if you will, in and of itself.
2: And I guess I think when I, and maybe it's because of my naive approach, when I think about model, I think about, you know, a specific way type like, like emdr or something like that um mm. but it's definitely i have a um, practice framework 100 like you said the the fit practice framework but also i think i lean heavily on graham pringle's training the trauma focused adventure therapy because he's taken the blue knot foundation which is an australian organization that have i think it's 45 sets of guidelines around working with complex trauma and if you ever have the time to read through it it's a big read it's a really great way of operating because you're always bringing it back to safety you're always bringing it back to doing no harm so that that informs um, everything i do along with fit which again if you're ensuring that what you're doing is useful and that the people that you're working with are engaged in it and you're doing no harm, you're probably not gonna go too far wrong. And then everything else in the middle is just you and how you work and and the tools and the strategies that you use to get those outcomes. I think it's it's less important, whether you're doing abseiling, rock climbing, surfing, snorkeling, caving, whatever, or sitting there talking or mountain biking, it's more important is just whatever, whatever you're doing is is good for the person and they feel good about it you're not going to hurt and hurt them i think that's the key don't (laughs) hurt people don't hurt people um and one thing sorry my brain goes off in different tangents but you said something earlier but it made me think about that i think one of the fundamental things apart from that um interpersonal relationship is as a practitioner you've got to be really okay with being uncomfortable especially in the outdoors not just physically but i'm i'm talking about that element of not having control over the situation and doing things that maybe you didn't plan to do but that's where the person's leading you to and so it's being it's being okay to be uncomfortable and still be professional like being mm. really flexible and that is a skill that i'm or an art i'm still learning um but i think it seems like that's an art too that as a guide
0: you would get get a really good preparation for doing that differently as well so i think that's awesome
2: yeah but i think as a guide too it was very much i'm the fearless leader you shall follow me off to the bush we go Mm. (laughs) that was my approach to begin with and i think maybe that was just through lack of experience whether now it is whatever we do we're going to be led by you and I've got a plan, but I'm willing to change that depending on on what what works for you. My car, uh, I love my car. It's a it's a troop carrier. I don't know. I don't think you have those in the states, Dan. But basically, yeah. um, if you take a Toyota Tacoma and you upsize it to the size of an F150, maybe an F or in between an F150 or an F250, and you put eight seats in the back facing sideways and two and a half seats in the front. And turn it into a full drive. That thing can go anywhere. Um,
0: that sounds but, awesome. I bet it's yeah. diesel too, huh?
2: Of course. Yeah, it's got mm-hmm. a mine is a for those Toyota fans out there, it's a HZ HZ1 engine. So it's an old truck engine. It doesn't go fast, but it goes. But anyway, <laughs> I've ripped out the <laughs> not cars. I've ripped out the back, but in there I've got I've got everything I need. So there's fishing rods, there's fishing tackle, there's there's stuff for bushcraft, there's you know, big, obligatory you know, ginormous first aid kit. There's there's a shovel. <laughs> there's there's wood carving knives. There's a a kitchen where we you know hot chocolates. Are, it's like the standard for every session. There's full drive gear. There's slack lines. There's there's stuff. And wherever we go, no matter what happens, it's like okay, well we need to change this up. Okay, well hey, let's get this out. Let's do that. And then there's space to throw bunches of other things in like paddle boards and kayaks and canoes. That sounds Um, awesome. Mm. Yeah, it's like and a dream come true.
0: I'm like, I kind of just want your truck for my general adventure plane outside. Could you ship me one of those to the US? <laughs> yeah,
2: they've got them over there. Don't worry, you'll find one. Oh, I, I was um, so
0: jealous of all the like small SUVs and Utes that you call them there. Uh, and I was like, oh, there's so many cool adventure vehicles here. So mm. that's just the, the adventure guy and me getting super jealous of what y'all had in Australia. It was real cool stuff.
2: But it well, sounds like a, a great setup
0: for your practice too.
2: I think yeah. Bring it. Thanks for bringing it back on point.
0: Um, <laughs> Instead of just geeking out on adventure vehicles.
2: i am <laughs> like, I got to
0: bring this back. We could just talk about sprinter vans now for the rest of the episode. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah it's about being flexible. It's like I've got a plan. We're going to go, you know, to the bush and we're going to do this. But yeah, you've got everything there to to mix it up and to be safe and 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 to still make it enjoyable. And I just got a. Um, a new awning which wraps right around, so we could be out in all weather conditions and find. Is it something. the ARB Batwing? Uh it's the XTM two seventy degree awning, which is the same. <laughs> so
0: cool. Will, you're going to have to edit out so much of our gear nerding.
2: <laughs> yeah, just go to the Instagram to check it out. Um, <laughs> sorry, yes, no, but it was a it was about being flexible. It was a it's about being responsive and intuitive to whoever you're working with and being able to be okay with going somewhere where you may not feel in control because realistically you're not in control as long as you can keep them safe and they have a good time then you're halfway there i think
1: it's just the spirit of adventure isn't it it's a endeavor with an uncertain outcome And in in that case, all therapy is adventurous, because even if you're sitting on the couch, who the heck knows what the outcome or the experience is going to be? And if we try to predict what's going to happen or think this is what my client's going to say next, we're going to be thrown off and we're going to be caught off guard where instead of being open to the experience and open to the adventure seems like a really important skilled or or trait to have as an adventure therapy practitioner.
2: I think it's a personality thing too. Um you as a person need to be open and present and and willing to go places with people metaphorically, physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the training helps you to keep it safe.
0: And since you're talking about safety and you're in Australia, this was one of the questions I had written down and I going to ask you how many of your clients have been eaten by crocodiles or uh. snake bites? Do you have to carry oh. reptile insurance or is that just like part of what's accepted?
2: <laughs> well, Daniel,
0: you I know nothing research, about anything. <laughs> if
2: you did your research, you would realize that I live in the South in, in Victoria where it's cold and crocodiles, they like the tropics. So pretty much crocodiles, oh, I don't know for sure, but I think don't go further South than like Rockhampton or, or Cairns which is the far north tropics. We have snakes down here, like everywhere else in Australia. But you have bears, so (laughs) we have nothing here that's going to eat you. You have bears and you have cougars and wolves. Like, come on, mate.
0: (laughs) So did the Australian Tourism Board tell you to lie about the crocodiles so we would feel safe to come there or...?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's totally it. They're paying me. (laughs) Um, But to to be honest, in in Australia, yeah, we've got a lot of bitey, poisonous stuff, but there's actually not that many things that are going to kill you, apart from in the tropics where there's crocodiles.
1: Speaking of the cold thing, I routinely say to my wife, I thought I moved to a place like where there's like sunny beaches and flip-flop weather all the time. Granted, I wear flip-flops every day of the year, but flip-flops. yeah, some sometimes it gets freaking cold. I was out on a program once we had an expedition, we got to negative seven Celsius, Daniel, do the math of whatever that is. It's like super freaking cold. We had ice around and some parts of Victoria get snow. So
0: you're pretty safe from the snakes for at least half the year. Yeah, when I was visiting there at Monash University, uh, which I don't think is that far from you, right, Doug? Uh, a couple hours. Depends which and campus. Right outside of Melbourne. Um, Clayton. I don't... Yeah, yep, Clayton. Uh, and yeah, there's snowboarding not that far from there. And I was like blown away. I had no idea.
2: Hmm. Where I live in Gippsland. So here's a plug for Gippsland. One of the most beautiful parts. We live in this weird little microclimate where especially west gippsland where it we live it's basically temperate rainforest so if you think of like vancouver island in canada like it's yeah. wet and there's moss everywhere well we kind of have that here too in parts where there's still bush and we have lots of waterfalls and there's tree ferns and old growth mountain ash forests not many of them but they're still here and we just live in this beautiful little environment where where i live in Warragul, i can drive for an hour and I'm at a ski resort. I can drive for an hour and I'm at the beach. I can drive for 10 minutes and I'm in a temperate rainforest gully with ancient rocks. I can drive for half an hour, I'm at at a cave system that's pretty unique. It's a pretty amazing place to live, but also to do some sort of um, outdoor-based work, especially adventure therapy, but there's so many places that we can go visit. And so many things we can do within, you know, an hour of of driving. To give you perspective, Daniel, I'm probably an hour and a half from Melbourne.
0: So I've actually been to Warragul. I worked with uh, Andrea Rupert on some projects. He's a, a professor at Monash. So we went to Warrigal And yeah, it, it, the whole area kind of blew my mind because it felt like the Pacific Northwest here and not at all what I'd expected weather-wise. And I mean, it's, yeah, green, lush. I was there in the winter, so it was cool and rainy. And I mean, just a really beautiful country, beautiful area to be in.
2: Yeah, but then for three months to the year, we have bushfires and we've had some of the most devastating bushfires in the last year two years here so you know we get both <laughs>
1: and i'm in south australia where it's dry and there's virtually no fresh water totally. but you're
2: hundred you're hundred percent um renewable energy now aren't you i don't know doug let's not do, let's <laughs> not do the climate change propaganda <laughs> you, can, you can edit for, that out edit that out so
1: show how little i focus on politics <laughs> you are, you are you're head.
2: all you're all uh renewables and there you've got a massive tesla battery yes i know everyone
1: talks about the battery <laughs> and we build submarines. That's what we do. We stop oh, yeah. cars and we build
2: submarines. Um, let's not get political.
1: Yeah, because <clears throat> of all that submarine battling that happens nowadays, since the German U-boats. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Um, I was going to say, I, we, you, you you segued perfectly, which somehow the guests on our uh, podcast do very well, because Daniel and I are
0: not very good at it. You know, I just ask people ridiculous comments about our questions about snakes and
2: crocodiles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We haven't um, even got a, gotten onto climbing yet.
0: Oh, no,
1: I've put the kibosh on that. I told Daniel before we started, we're not getting there because then this uh, podcast. That's be- going to
0: be the six hour bonus episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey how do you say oh, tell me all about the blue mountains and grampians
2: yeah. oh no that is oh, let's productive. not
0: go
1: there either <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that really impressed me with your program is and you talk about being in gippsland and being in sort of a small sort of self-contained community right
2: yes there's definitely a culture of gippsland and within gippsland there's subcultures, definitely like everywhere
1: and how how does that impact your practice i mean You're busy. You're thinking about a wait list. It's been about a year since starting it. That's already impressive as hell. Um, Because one of the greatest things, someone can start the... I was amazed the first time someone called True North. I was like, holy crap, someone's (laughs) ringing the phone. Um, (laughs) And then you get super busy. And so what are the considerations about having this practice in a tighter-knit community than being
2: in the city? So without a doubt. The reason why Gippsland Adventures Therapy has had such a good start is about relationships. So I spent 12 years working in Gippsland in the Latrobe Valley for a not-for-profit, working with developmental trauma. But it was more about the people that I knew professionally and personally during that time and the kids that I worked with, um, you know, they're still in the community and Mark, actually, something that Mark said on on the last podcast, which really struck a chord with me, was it was about your ability. It's about your ability to meet a common ground with somebody. I think that's what he was talking about, and understanding where they're coming from, and and speak in a way that works that they understand. And I might take that one step further. It's it's about relationships. It's about connecting with people, people that you work with professionally, the 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 child protection workers, the the youth workers, the residential care home carers, the foster carers, the case managers, the parents, the the kids. It's not like you see them for 10 days and then you never see them again. They're they're within the community. You're in the community. You're working there. I mean, I'm still in contact with some people that I worked with mm, 12 years ago and they're now in their 20s. Um, In fact, there's even somebody who Maybe, I'm hoping, we might even be able to do some work together as, like, co-facilitators. It, it has been about the relationships that I've that I've managed to form with professionals and with participants because I'm sure if I took this service and plonked it down in Tassie or up in Queensland or wherever, there's no way I would have such a running start that I've had. And within Gippsland, um, you know, <laughs> Gippslanders are known for their their resilience especially in the circles that I move in it's kind of about the not stick it to the man approach but it's you know blue collar we're not white collar workers you know we've had it rough or some people have had it rough I mean in just to give you context Latrobe Valley is where all of the coal mines are and the and the the coal powered um, power stations and and that was privatized about thirty years ago, and so many people lost their jobs and were dependent on uh, welfare and didn't leave the the region, but instead fell into this cycle of welfare dependency and decreased mental health, and then that cycle has continued. Um, so you get this this culture of of people. It's like we're Gippslanders, we do it rough sometimes, but we're we're staunch if you connect with people and, and respect where they come from and don't try and impose your views upon them and instead genuinely try and help. And I think that's another thing that runs true in Gippsland is people genuinely want to help each other. Um, Gippsland is oh, always banding together like we've had devastating fires twice within the last decade we've had floods yeah we've had a lot to deal with It's it's just being part of the community that's been the positive um and being genuine with people and doing what following through with what you say just trying to be helpful
1: i found it really interesting to listen to how cultural context and community context really impacts how we
2: deliver this work yeah and 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 within Gippsland there's there's obviously subcultures which i'm not connected with like i'll say that i'm not i haven't been very good at connecting with first nations communities here that i want to um but i have to wear the fact that i i probably haven't done enough of the work to be able to and but then there's also we have big refugee communities here which i've worked with back when I was working at a not-for-profit. But again, I'm not very connected with. So, you know, there's a lot of work still that I have to do. I think as long as you're open to doing that and you're not pigeonholing people and saying, I only work with this type of client, I I only do this, Mm -hmm. then people are going to be open to sort of supporting you. I mean, once a month I run a community day, or I try to, where uh, I only charge the cost of, say, fuel or whatever it is to get there. I don't pay myself to do it. And, and we go and do an activity, like an adventure activity, that most people probably wouldn't be able to afford to do um, for with a private tour. Yeah, and, so cool. and you can, you mm-hmm. connect with whoever. and It's open to the public, and it, it, I say that it's not a drop-off program. You have to come with your kids. I'm not looking after them. And we go and we do something. Like we've done paddle boarding at one of the lakes here, Um nature walks this saturday we're going rock climbing it's actually one of the it's such a cool spot so even though i say that we live in like a temperate rainforest you go over to tires which is from here it's 45 minutes and you go over the hill and all of a sudden you're in a more dry eucalypt type forest it's all limestone and it's an ancient coral reef and there was a, a quarry where they used to extract the lime and now it's being abandoned but it's a really great spot to do some rock climbing. But you can actually climb and look at marine fossils while you're climbing. It's not mountains like you have, Daniel, but it's, it's a hilly area with gorges and there's a river running through and it's just magic. And that's 45 minutes that from my place. Awesome. A bunch of us are just going to go and throw a few ropes up and do a bit of climbing. But it's not so much about the climbing. It's more about just trying to do something with people outside, which is enjoying, enjoying, which is enjoyable and safe. Uh, and yeah, it just creates a nice little environment for people, especially at the moment with COVID. Like Victoria has been hit pretty hard, and where I live has escaped the majority of it up until recently. And it's just yeah, it's really tough for people right now. So anything like that is well, hopefully it's useful. Um,
1: Doug, before we let you go, uh, while I have you two, I'm looking to buy some wire gate quick draws, and so <laughs> do any of you have some advice on that, or maybe some quick links or solid gate quick draws any ideas
0: think, you get better at climbing you don't need quick draws Let doug put the rope up
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say the same uh if you, if you need to ask for advice you're probably not ready to use them <laughs> <laughs> just just come just come over here and we'll we'll go climbing
1: i i'll never forget daniel when he came here Daniel and I went out went out to dinner or something and we get back he's like come come look at this stuff I got and he's going through he's like this is an XZYTPYG yg freaking 32 000, you know bolt and I go Daniel I have no freaking idea what you're talking about <laughs> T-
2: to tell you the truth I'm not that much of a gear nerd um I love I I'm love- not either I don't
0: even remember what he's talking about
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love, love shiny Vault. stuff but yeah, like my my shed or my carport now it's turning into a, it's turning into a, like an outdoor shop actually. I've got a like a rack of bikes on one side. I've got a rack of wetsuits. I've got a rack of surfboards. Oh, Daniel, I built my own bouldering wall. Um, Ooh, during got my, my box workout. of holes.
0: I haven't put mine up yet, but it's going in yeah, the basement
2: soon. No, this is this is cool, and and you know there's all the ropes hanging from it and everything. So it is. I won't I won't lie. I kind of do enjoy being out there and playing with all the gear. Um, yeah, my friends all talk about
0: how I have the gear rental garage over here where they can come and pick from like 12 different bikes or a number of kayaks or climbing gear ice axes. And I'm like, yeah, I just, I lend it out to people. So I don't feel bad about the fact that I'm hoarding equipment that I don't use that much.
2: You're a friend with benefits. (laughs) 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 I have a few mates that sort of do that too. They go, Hey, can I borrow this? yeah
1: on that Um, note Doug thanks so much for a chat just about yeah thanks a ton um, all things sort of some some ideas about how to think about starting a practice and I think for the listeners this is probably a great episode about Australian context about not only what what this specific community is like but also what what adventure therapy can look like and 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 how hard time zones are (laughs) (laughs) they're not really yeah, not really yeah. at all. Just Daniels and Nept.
2: I regularly yep. talk to <laughs> I'm a <friend>. <laughs> Regularly talk to a friend in Canada and we don't seem to have any issues.
0: <laughs> it must be because you're Commonwealth. You don't have all this uh, extra freedom holding uh, you down. Know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in, speaking of politics, let's dive into that.
1: Why yeah. <laughs> why is the queen on the Australian coin? I'm I'm not
2: <laughs> don't respond,
0: Doug. I'm not. Yeah. Um, don't do it. No. <laughs> well thanks no it was great uh, and you have a <laughs> open standing invitation come to oregon we're gonna go climb in. i'll take you to beautiful places and let you put the rope up because COVID made me fat
2: my <laughs> my <laughs> wife's. um the, i think if she could move it would either be to bc or portland oregon it's on her bucket list um yep, when start. i mentioned that i'm talking to somebody from portland
0: perfect she, well i mean you you all yeah. are welcome to come and visit at any time if I bring my combo or wire gate quick draws, my lad.
2: Yeah, let's do it.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Flying over. I'll, I'll get the the couch ready for Will and the guest bed ready for Doug.
2: Thanks. No, I think we'll uh, we'll we'll go get our own place because you don't want my tribe. Tell you what, they're they're noisy. <laughs> <laughs>